raise your hand if you watch the State of the Union uh, address last Tuesday. Anybody watch it? Okay, good. This civic-minded, political, okay, good. Uh, that's really neat. I, I enjoy hearing what the president thinks is important to the country. I like hearing the things as they lay out their plans for the next two years. And it really doesn't matter who's in the White House. I enjoy listening to those things and hearing what they have to say. I, I've never agreed completely with any president we've had uh, about all of the things that they think are important, although there were a couple things this year um, that I had to uh, agree with. Uh, never be a socialist country and life starts at conception. Uh, I agreed with those two things, uh, so that was uh, good. But uh, it's interesting to me to watch the, uh, the speech. Here's what I enjoy more than just listening to whatever the president has to say. Uh, watching the two sides of the house and how they react to the different things that are, that are said. Um, the side in power, right? The side that has the president on their side that stands up every 10 seconds and claps, sometimes for nothing at all. Uh, there's like, hey, it's time to stand up and clap, and so we're going to do that. Uh, and then the other side, uh, which um, instead of standing, are uh, sulking. Uh, some of them do that really well. I'm like, they must have practiced in front of the mirror uh, to make sure that they looked uh, right. It, it was, uh, it, it's funny, I think it's funny to watch that. Uh, whether it's a Democrat or Republican in the presence, it's nice to funny to watch the both sides. Um, but it's also pretty telling about what people think and, and, and where they're at uh, and what they're doing for us in that place. It's also interesting to me that these people call each other colleagues. And if you listen to, um, to uh, 24-hour news stuff on TV or radio, you will hear them say things like, so-and-so on the other side of the aisle is a friend of mine. Like, we've been involved in things together, and we've done stuff together. And, and, and then they proceed to just rip into the other person and, and how they're wrong, and it's just this terrible thing. I think for most of them, their relationship looks, um, instead of like colleagues, their relationship looks more like a circus uh, to me, where, you know, cooperation between natural enemies, uh, animals and stuff in a circus is, is forced by a whip. And, and that's kind of what I, what I saw. In, in fact, I don't want to point any fingers, but a couple times I, I saw our Speaker of the House uh, and her side of the chamber started to get a little raucous. I don't know if you caught this. And she looked over at him. She went, and you, if you know anything about uh, Pelosi, um, that was, she was cracking the whip right there. <laughs> you get in line. That's what, uh, that's what she was saying. Maybe you uh, have had a relationship like that in the past where you, hey, this is my friend, um, but really there's not a lot of friendly things going on between the two of you. Maybe you're in a relationship like that right now. And we say this is my friend, or, or maybe even this is my, my spouse, but there's struggle there, and there's tension there, and, and there's anxiety about the relationship, and, and you're together, but it feels more like that togetherness is being forced than it is just two people enjoying being together. Relationships are tough. 
two people with different ideas, different ideals, different backgrounds, and different baggage trying to go the same direction together. That's a tough thing for anybody. And maybe that's why relationships sometimes feel like a three-legged race where each person thinks the finish line is in the opposite direction. It doesn't go very well, and you don't get very far in that. Maybe that's why more and more of us try to stick close to people that we already know agree with us, they're already heading in the same direction as us, or they have the same political or professional connections. It seems as a society, we're becoming more and more pigeonholed in our relationships. And it seems like it's harder to find friends because we're looking for someone exactly like us so that we can just avoid any awkward kind of, of moments. I don't want to have a conversation with somebody who's on the other side of the political spectrum from me because that's just going to be awkward. Christians especially, I think, can fall into three modes of operation when it comes to interacting with people. And so when we look for friends as believers sometimes, we look for a group of people to do life with, we, we really fall into kind of three modes. And I, let me share those with you. I think the first one is that Christians can create a bubble filled only with Christian people. Like we just decide, I'm only going to be friends with people who are believers or who go to my church or have my same kind of faith background. But when we only hang out with Christians who believe, think, and act like we do, there's some problems with that. Like groups of Christians, when the only people you're around are other Christians, you can become really judgmental really quickly. You can start to spend your time pointing out everyone else's faults while ignoring your own. This quickly becomes an echo chamber and puts us in an us versus them mentality. We soon forget in our little Christian bubble that we're supposed to help others. And we forget that because we're too busy harping on them and the things that they do and the choices that they make. And so sometimes we try to insulate ourselves from the world by only hanging out with other believers. And yet it begins to have a negative impact on our faith and the way we deal with other people. The second way that we handle relationships is that, that we sometimes can compromise our beliefs and give in to peer pressure simply to avoid problems in our relationships. And maybe you see this a, a lot at, at work. If you go to a job that you work and, and, and other people there that you're friendly with or they're you know, work associates or whatever, but they're not believers. And so to kind of keep the peace, you find yourself skimping on your morals or your ethics or, or whatever. You're laughing at jokes that maybe you wouldn't otherwise laugh at simply because you want to avoid the awkward situation of people saying, oh, well, are, you're a believer, or why aren't you laughing at that? And we just, we just don't want to uh, deal with that, and so, and so we, hang, we hang back. When we hang out with non-Christians, we can be pressured into doing things contrary to what we claim to believe. And so we can actually suppress God's work in our own lives and damage our witness to our friends at the same time. And, and in those situations, whether, whether at work or in our, our neighborhood or other places, we can become the very type of hypocrite our non-Christian friends think the church is already full of. 
Your, your, your friends, even if they're not believers, they know that you go to church. And so when we hang out with them and we laugh at the same jokes, even though maybe we shouldn't, and we end up doing some of the same things, even though we know they're sketchy, what we end up doing is, is feeding into this idea that the church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites. The third way we deal with relationships is that we treat people like projects, and we call it friendship. We take people on as projects and we go, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help them. I'm going to benefit them. If you've been a believer like most of your life, um, like me, maybe you grew up in, in uh, elementary school or middle school, high school, and you were a Christian, um, I saw this all the time, uh, especially uh, females. Females did this all the time in church. I can fix him, <laughs> right? And, and, and they would say this, well, look, I know that he's not, a, he's not a believer, he doesn't go to church, but I'm helping him. I'm witnessing to him. I'm bringing him... Uh, no, you're not. Um, that, like, okay, let's, if a hundred times that works, like, 0.25% uh, of the time, it just doesn't work. And what often happens is the believing person usually gets dragged down instead of pulling the non-believing person up. We fool ourselves into thinking that our project person is really evangelism, though we're not relying on the only one who can really change a heart. And so what happens in those situations is that we're, we're trying to force that other person to have faith, to have our faith, without really knowing our Father. And it doesn't work that way. Jesus said, no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. And so if you're one of these believers who has project people in your life and you're going to save them and you're going to evangelize them and you're going to that doesn't work god is the one who has to do that and and draw them and bring them along now you can share your faith with them but let me tell you the best way for you to do that is simply to live your life looking like jesus instead of trying to force them to take on your faith when they don't know your father when it comes to friendships, we should follow the example of Jesus. And that's what we want to do, right? That's why we come to church. We, hey, what did Jesus do? And so I can do the same things that he did. Jesus didn't isolate himself from non-believers. He didn't indulge in sin to avoid conflict. And he didn't see people as projects. Jesus lived in tandem with believers and non-believers. And he allowed them simply to watch his life Every day. Friendships are important for believers because people matter. And in all his dealings with people, Jesus taught us that people matter. And so how we treat people matters. And that really is the bottom line today, okay? If you get nothing else, walk out of here with that statement. People matter, and so how we treat people matters. So we're going to look at a situation today involving Jesus and someone on, um, on, the side of the, on the other side of the political and spiritual aisle, so to speak, from where Jesus was. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 9, Matthew 9, 9 to 13. So if you have a, a phone, a Bible app on your phone or a tablet or you want to follow along on the screen, or even if you brought a paper Bible, uh, we're going to be in the New Testament in Matthew uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. Before we jump into that, let's just take a second out and pray, okay?
God, it's important for us to have friends. I would say we need to have friends. So many times as believers, we've messed friendship up, and we've ended up, we've ended up doing friendship in a way that is negative to us and for them instead of being positive. And so would you just give us eyes to see and ears to hear today? God, would you speak to each of us about where we're at with our friends and, and, and what we can do, what steps we can take to, to, to model more the friendship that Jesus showed us by his example. And so as we look at your word today and we dive in, God, would you reveal the truth of that to us? Um, would you keep us from believing things that don't line up with your word? And God, would you open our heart to this idea of, of friendship and, and, and community and, and love like you love. God, help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9, here's how it reads. This is a guy named Matthew, and he's going to come up in the text, and he's writing this story, okay? This is what happened. This is first person. This is what happened to him. He says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees, those are religious leaders of the day, when they saw this, they asked Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, Jesus overheard it, and this was his response. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus shows us here in this text that people aren't projects. And he doesn't treat Matthew like a project, even though Matthew is a perfect candidate for a project person for Jesus. Instead, we read in the text, Matthew starts out this way. Um, he was walking and he saw a man. I think that's important. Because Jesus didn't see Matthew's career. He didn't make judgments about Matthew's character. He didn't see Matthew's challenges in his life. He didn't focus on Matthew's condition. He didn't second-guess Matthew's life choices or treat him differently because Matthew had a lot of cash. Jesus saw a man. That's hard for us to do, I think. We look at people and, and almost immediately judge their condition. We look at people and we notice their physical or developmental challenges. We treat people differently based on how much cash we think they have. Or we talk behind their backs about the choices they may have made that probably got them in the situation they're in in the first place. We look at the, the problems and the challenges in their life and the things that they're saddled with and that sheds light on, on their character. And so we look at people all the time and we make snap judgments about who they are and where they've been and what's going on in their lives. We make jokes about how every lawyer is a crook or make assumptions about a woman based on how she's dressed. But Jesus sees us, not our stuff. The Bible says that God sees the heart 
He doesn't look at the outward appearance. Jesus sees us, not our stuff, not our hang-ups, not our bad habits, not our hurts. Consider the stories in the Bible that, that Jesus uses to give us hints about the character of God, about what kind of a person God is. Jesus told the story to his disciples about the prodigal son, and maybe you remember that from, from early days or being in church or VBS or something. Jesus told the story about a, a brother, a young, young man, the youngest brother in his father's family, who decided he wanted to go and live on his own. And so he went to his dad and he demanded that his father give him half of his inheritance right now. I don't know why, but his father agreed and gave him his half of the inheritance and his son took off. The story that Jesus tells is that the man went to another country, went to another place, and he squandered the money that his father had given him on wine and, and women and, and, and just stuff. And after a while, there was a famine in the land, and, and pretty soon the money that he had was all used up. And all the friends that he had gained while he had money and could pay for them and, and do the things that he wanted, all his friends left. So he was alone. And the Bible story tells us that he sold himself out as a servant to a farmer who had some pigs. And his, his job was to feed the pigs. And it says he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. That's pretty destitute, isn't it? When you want to eat the food that is being given to the pigs, the leftover stuff. Finally, the young man decides, oh, my father's servants have, have better conditions, living conditions than this. I'll go home and see if my dad will just hire me back as a servant. At least I'll have the things that I need. And on his way home, his dad saw him. It says while he was still a long way off, and instead of running to him and, and, and beginning to go down the list, which is probably what I would do, right? Like, you know, son, you blew it. And so you're going to have to make up for this a little bit. And so go down, here's the rules and here's the stuff. Jesus says that's not what happened. The man ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he welcomed him back home, not as a servant, but as a son. And he had a great big party and he invited everybody else to come and celebrate because his son had returned. Those are the kind of stories that Jesus uses to tell us what kind of a person God is and how he looks at us. And he doesn't see our bad choices. And he doesn't see the character flaws in, in our lives. And he, he doesn't look at how much money we have. He doesn't, he doesn't look at those things. He sees us, not our stuff. Jesus didn't just see a man. but The text says he saw a man named Matthew. Let's be honest for a moment. We often refer to people by names other than the ones they were given, right? We might refer to someone who treats us poorly as a jerk. We label people as racist or xenophobic or socialist or slut. We often refer to people based on how we perceive their behavior, how they look, the way they talk, or simply as a way to marginalize them. If you don't agree with me, well, you're stupid or uninformed. Or the one I like is sheep. <laughs> if you're on Facebook very much or social media, everybody who doesn't agree with you on social media is a sheep. You're just following along what somebody else has given you. 
We quickly move to name-calling as a way to make someone else look bad or feel bad or just to get them to shut up. We use name-calling to show a person that, that they or their opinion don't matter. But Jesus called people by name to prove that they did. Socialists and psychologists tell us that the sweetest word to every human ear is their name. It's what we love to hear the most. Jesus called him Matthew. And I think that's significant in the story because of where Matthew was sitting. Matthew was used to be call, being called lots of names, I think. But seldom was he called by the name given him by his parents. Matthew was a Jew. Okay? He was part of the Israelite community, the, the Hebrews they're referred to as. He was, he was part of God's chosen people. But at the time that Jesus saw him, the Romans had occupied Jerusalem. They had, they had brought Jerusalem under the Roman monarchy, and, and they were subservient to Rome. And what Rome needed was some of the Jewish people to work for them to collect taxes on behalf of Rome and the emperor. So that's what Matthew did. Matthew was a Jewish tax collector who worked for the Romans. If he had lived in 1970s America, people would have said that he was working for the man. Jewish tax collectors for the Romans earned a reputation as thieves. They typically had Roman muscle guarding the money collected. And because they had the muscle, they often required people to pay more taxes than they owed, and then they kept the excess that they collected for themselves. In Jewish culture, a Jew who worked for the Romans and collected tax from other Jews was treated as the lowest of the low. Matthew was surely used to being called a traitor. If Matthew lived in the Star Wars universe, he probably would have been called a scruffy-headed nerf herder. If he'd lived during the dark days of America's slave past, he would have certainly been called an Uncle Tom. There's not a lot of reference in the Bible to the derogatory names given to people but it's easy to guess. It wouldn't take us very long to think of the names that we would give to someone like Matthew. We would refer to him by every name possible except the one they'd been given. But here's the other impressive thing about this moment in time when Jesus calls to Matthew. It's not very often, it seems, that you and I are called in the midst of our depravity. Jesus sees Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth, which really means this. There's no hiding. There's no hiding Matthew's past or present sin. Matthew is currently in the process of the thing that earned him such a hated position among his fellow Jews. Jesus sees Matthew's sin 
But he calls Matthew by name. I think that's an important piece to this story. Because many of us probably in the midst of our sin or while sin's going on, when we come to church, we're setting that aside, right? We come to church and we put on a happy face and we dress up or whatever and we, we come and we pretend like everything's great. And so when we're at church, when we expect to meet Jesus, we're kind of separated and insulated from our sin. That wasn't the case with Matthew. He was right there in the midst of the thing that was his sin, and yet Jesus, instead of referring to him by his sin, calls him by his name. I think that's huge. And it's not just Matthew that Jesus treats this way. Matthew's not special in the story, really. Because if we look at verse 10, we read this, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, and many other tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now, eating with a, with a person was a very personal and private thing in Jesus' day. To have someone in your home for the Jews meant that you not only accepted them, but you agreed with them. A Jewish person who went into the home of a Samaritan could be killed. This was serious. By Jesus having dinner with Matthew, it meant that he accepted Matthew and his friends like equals. Jesus gave validity to Matthew, the tax collectors, and the sinners. And, and that's why the Pharisees asked the question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he validating what they do and who they are? We might have the same questions today. How can that person hang out with those people? Doesn't he know what they do? Doesn't he know who they are? This was as scandalous as I was trying to think of. What would be a good, um, a, 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 a good equal thing for how scandalous this was in Jesus' day? Here's what I came up with. If you follow politics, you'll get a kick out of this. This was as scandalous as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez sitting down in Trump Tower for a nice dinner with the president, the Donald himself. That would be equal to what's going on here in the story. It would ruin both Ocasio-Cortez and probably the Donald. <laughs> It'd be bad for both of them. And the religious leaders are, are looking at the two of these, at Jesus and his disciples and the, the, the tax collectors and the sinners like that, like we would look at that dinner. We go, these, are, these don't match up. These are not together. How can they be sitting in the same place? But Jesus showed by his actions that people mattered, even people that he disagreed with. The sin of Matthew and his friends didn't scare Jesus. Jesus wasn't there because of their mistakes. He was there because they mattered to him. And it's not your mistakes that matter to Jesus. It's you. So here's how Jesus responded to the Pharisees' question. It's important to note that the Pharisees were the religious elite, right? The, the pious, stuck-up, self-righteous, hypocritical people of Jesus' day. So here's how Jesus responds to him. He says, first, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
duh. Like, we all get that, right? But I think it goes a little deeper than that. Every hospital is full of healthy people risking their health and in some cases their lives to care for people who can't care for themselves. Hospitals are full of sick people. And who wants to go be around sick people? And yet that's what those people who work in those situations do. The healthy people are risking their health and their lives to take care of people who are sick. If you're a follower of Jesus, according to this text, you're a doctor. You're a nurse. The Pharisees considered themselves the spiritually healthy and Jesus just puts them in their place. What he was really saying was this. He looked at the Pharisees and he said, hey, I'm doing your job. You're the ones who are supposed to be here. You're the spiritually healthy people who are supposed to be helping the spiritually sick. Then Jesus tells them this. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Now this was a quote from the Old Testament prophet uh, Old Testament prophet Hosea. The religious leaders had gotten really good at sacrificing for their sins. They just never stopped sinning. Let me put it in modern uh, churchy terms for us. God desires mercy, not church attendance. God desires grace, not your giving. God desires a servant's heart, not your service. You go, wait a minute, preacher. Aren't we supposed to come to church? Aren't we supposed to serve? Aren't we supposed to give? Yeah. Yeah, we are. But sometimes we get really good at doing Christian th things like coming to church, like giving financially, like, like serving in a ministry, but we never actually take the time to look like Jesus while we do it. And that's the point. If your goal is to look more like Jesus... You will come, and you will give, and you will serve, because that's what Jesus did. But if you're simply trying to check off things on your spiritual box, I went to church this Sunday, put a little money in the offering, I helped out in this area, check, 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 look God, what I have done, doesn't cut it. That's what Jesus is saying to the people. Because sacrificing in Jesus' day was the top spiritual thing that you could do. They were commanded by God to do that. If I sin, I sacrifice. If I sin, I sacrifice. That's what they did. And, and Jesus says, look, God's not all impressed with your sacrificing if you never stop sinning. There's got to be a change in your life. Finally, Jesus said this, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus didn't come to pander to the religious elite, but to begin life-changing work in those who were aware of their need for him. The religious elite didn't think they needed Jesus, but the tax collectors and the sinners were anxious to respond to Jesus because he treated them like people, not like problems. Every human bears the image of God in their moral, spiritual, and intellectual nature. That reality 
requires an appropriate response. And so if humans, if we as humans are to love God, then we as humans are to love each other as an expression of God. I think a couple years ago I said it this way. As believers, we're to love other people horizontally, the people around us, and God receives our love of them as love for Him. So if you want to love God, it's not enough just to come to church, to give a little bit, to serve. We actually have to love people because that's God's love language. When we love people, God goes, that guy loves me. That girl loves me because they're loving others. People matter. And so how we treat people matters. We need to stop treating people like projects. Avoiding them because of their past or labeling them because of their preferences. Retire from your role as the fixer of everyone else's problems and just focus on them as people loved by God. Let me make it simple. Be the kind of friend you'd really like to find. No one wants to be around a self-righteous fixer all the time, but if you start seeing people and how they matter to God, you can be a real friend and stop being a fraud. So what does that look like for us at, at, at real life as a church? If we're going to help every person possible find real life in Jesus, we've got to start looking more like Jesus every day. So let's not isolate ourselves from the world to avoid being misunderstood. And let's start living our lives in tandem with others who may not believe as we do in order to be an influence in their lives merely by following Jesus in our everyday life. People matter. And so how we treat people matters. Be a friend, not a fixer this week. See past other people's problems and just see them as another person loved by God. Learn someone's name instead of simply calling them names. Have dinner with someone you may not agree with instead of trying to justify your position, your path, and your practices. Just try to be a little more like Jesus. I think if we did that, if we just tried to be a little more like Jesus and, and be a friend to people, it's not just our church that would grow, but our individual faith would grow, our family would grow, and our friends would grow as well. I'm going to leave you with it one more time. People matter. And so how we treat people matters. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for, for seeing past character flaws and 
challenges or choices. Thank you for seeing us as people. Thank you for loving us, each of us, as simply a creation of God. Help us to see other people the way you do. Help us to, to, to stop referring to others by, by names that we've assigned to them and start getting to know them enough to use their name. To see beyond the problems, the baggage, and the hurts. God, to see them as individuals who your son Jesus went to the cross to save, just like us. We really aren't different. We're the same. And the people outside these walls who may not even know about you are still loved by you. So help us to love them too. God, thanks for calling us to join, us, join you in, in mission. to help every person possible find real life in, in your son Jesus. And God will do that when we work to look more like Jesus every day. Thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, next week is um, part three of our Don't Get It Twisted series, and we're going to talk about conflict in relationships. So that'll be fun. Uh, okay, love you. See you next Sunday. Uh, don't slip. I guess. I was buried.